0: And I must tell you how I intend to relate my story. Having never before undertaken to write a long narrative, I have considered and laid down a few rules which I shall observe. Some of these are unquestionably good, others, I dare say, offend against the canons of composition. But I adopt them because they will enable me to tell my story better than, with my imperfect experience, better rules possibly would. In the first place, I shall represent the people with whom I had to deal quite fairly. I have met some bad people, some indifferent, and some who at this distance of time seem to me like angels in the unchanging light of heaven. My narrative shall be arranged in the order of the events. I shall not recapitulate nor anticipate. If I can be clear and true, my clumsiness and irregularity, I hope, will be forgiven me.
1: So wrote a great Irish storyteller, Joseph Sheridan Leffonu, in his last novel, Willing to Die, which he finished shortly before his death, just a hundred years ago. For many years in Dublin, he had been known as the Invisible Prince, as he emerged from his house in Merian Square only after dark. The family was of Huguenot origin, and following the persecutions in France under Louis XIV, fled to England. Charles Le Fanu de Cresson was a cavalry officer in the army of King William and fought with him in his victorious campaigns in Ireland. His descendant, Joseph Le Fanu, held the office of clerk of the court in Ireland. His second wife was Alicia, daughter of Thomas Sheridan, manager of the Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin, and sister of the more famous Richard Brinsley, author of The School for Scandal and The Rivals. Joseph's eldest son, Thomas Philip, went into the church. He married Emma, daughter of Dr. Dobbin of Trinity College. He became curate of St. Mary's Church, Mary Street, and at his residence, 45 Lower Dominic Street, on August 28, 1814, his first son, Joseph Sheridan Fanu, was born. At that time, the whole of Europe lay under the shadow of war, and it was therefore not surprising that the talented curate should the following year be appointed military chaplain to the Royal Irish Artillery in the Hibernian School's Phoenix Park. Thus it was that Joseph's earliest years were spent watching the hustle and bustle of the parade ground and exploring the ancient and picturesque little village of Chapel with its salmon leap, which he was later in life to immortalise. There was the excitement of the military reviews in the Phoenix Park and a spectacle of soldiers marching and counter-marching in the uniforms they had worn at Waterloo. In this connection, Le Fanu later, in a short story about Chapelizod, Lizard, described how a phantom regiment was seen at night by one Peter Bryan marching through the village with drums beating and colours flying.
2: On they came at a slow march, and what was most singular in the matter was that they were drawing several cannons along with them. Some held ropes, others spoke the wheels, and others again marched in front of the guns and behind them, with muskets shouldered, giving a stately character of parade and regularity to this, as it seemed to Peter, most unmilitary procedure. It was owing either to some temporary defect in Peter's vision or to some illusion attendant upon mist and moonlight, or perhaps to some other cause, that the whole procession had a certain waving and vapoury character which perplexed and tasked his eyes not a little. It was like the pictured pageant of a phantasmagoria reflected upon smoke. It was as if every breath disturbed it. Sometimes it was blurred, sometimes obliterated, now here, now there. Sometimes, while the upper part was quite distinct, the legs of the column would nearly fade away or vanish outright, and then again they would come out into clear relief, marching on with measured tread, while the cocked hats and shoulders grew, as it were, transparent and all but disappeared. But clear or dim,
1: the ghostly company kept marching on.
2: By this time, the foremost of them were quite near, and truth to say they were the queerest soldiers he had ever seen in the course of his life. They wore long gaiters and leather breeches, three-cornered hats, bound with silver lace, long blue coats with scarlet facings and linings, which latter were shown by a fastening which held together the two opposite corners of the skirt behind. And in front the breasts were in like manner, connected at a single point, where and below which they sloped back, disclosing a long-flapped waistcoat of snowy whiteness. They had very large, long cross-belts, and wore enormous pouches of white leather, hung extraordinarily low, and on each of these was a little silver star glittering. But what struck him as most grotesque and outlandish in their costume was their extraordinary display of shirt-frill in front, and of ruffle about their wrists, and the strange manner in which their hair was frizzled out and powdered under their hats, and clubbed up into great rolls behind. But one of the party was mounted, He rode a tall white horse with high action and arching neck. He had a snow-white feather in his three-quartered hat, and his coat was shimmering all over with a profusion of silver lace. From these circumstances, Peter concluded that he must be the commander of the detachment, and examined him as he passed attentively. He was a slight, tall man, whose legs did not half fill his leather breeches, and he appeared to be at the wrong side of sixty. He had a shrunken, weather-beaten, mulberry-coloured face, carried a large black patch over one eye and turned neither to the right nor to the left but rode on at the head of his men with a grim military inflexibility.
1: In 1826, the older Lefanu was appointed Dean of Embley and Rector of the parish of Abingdon in County Limerick, where Joseph lived until he entered Trinity College. In Abingdon, he gathered the material he was now to use later in his short stories of country life, somewhat in the style of Lever and Lover, such as The Quare Gander. And the scenery around Abingdon is very well described in Sir Dominic's Bargain. Particularly attractive to him was the half ruined Capricorn House among the trees of a picturesque mountainside and the Deer Park and Capacal and Glen were favourite haunts of the children for games of adventure and bird nesting. Also in this part of the countryside was a gold mine of folklore, plenty of Shanakies and wise men and women prescribing folk cures for all kinds of ailments. At this time one thing that depressed his father, the Dean, was his being habitually late for prayers. One morning breakfast was over, nearly over, and he had not appeared. His father, holding his watch in his hand, said in his severest tones, ''I ask you, Joseph, I ask you seriously, is this right?'' Uh, ''No, sir,'' said Joe, glancing at the watch. ''I'm sure it must be fast.'' In 1831, the Tithe War began, and the friendliness uh, which had for a long time existed between the elephanu family and the local people abruptly ended. This might not have happened... But that, unfortunately, a cousin of the deans, the Reverend Charles Cote, who dwelt in a neighbouring parish, enforced the paying of tides, and the Leffonou's consequently suffered in popularity. The rectory was attacked by a stone-throwing crowd, and Joseph's sister and his brother William were hit. And one day, William and his cousin Robert Fleming, when out riding, were saluted by a considerable crowd with cries of "Down with the Orange men! Down with the tides!" A cart was pushed across the road, but the boys drew their pistols and got away under a shower of stones. A quarter of a mile further on, they came upon another group who flung volley after volley of stones. The boys were covered with blood, but by spurring their horses, they were able to elude their attackers and arrive home without any more serious injury. It was shortly after this that Joseph entered Trinity and there took up the study of law. As a student there, he possessed an irresistible humour and his oratorical gifts made him a formidable rival of the young debaters of his time, and he was noted for the fiery eloquence of his attack. One of his contemporaries at Trinity was William Wilde, afterwards the famous physician and father of Oscar Wilde. In 1841, having graduated with honours, Joseph Leffonu was called to the bar. Coincidentally with his studies, he had worked himself into the editor's chair of The Warder, a Dublin newspaper of the time. Shortly after graduating, he bought the newspaper Lock, Stock and Barrel, much to the astonishment of his friends, who were looking forward to seeing him make a name for himself in the legal profession. In 1842, he also purchased the Protestant Guardian, as well as a third share in three other journals, the Statesman, the Dublin Evening Packet and the Evening Mail. But later he amalgamated the Warder, Packet and Mail into one paper, the Dublin Evening Mail, which ceased publication only a few years ago. It was while he was still at Trinity that his first literary effort appeared in the Dublin University magazine, which was to publish his best work uh, during his lifetime. It was a ghost story, The Ghost and the Bonesetter, and appeared in that magazine in January
3: 1838. Now, here is... Benedict Kiley. Well, my introduction to Sheridan Lefanu came from the simple fact that my mother was a great woman for buying books at auctions, and from one auctions she came back with an edition of the personal papers. And in these mildewed volumes I came up on that fascinating story just mentioned, The Ghost and the Bonesetter. To me it was one of the great comic stories, and still is one of the great comic stories of all time. The Bonesetter, who is a little bit given to the whiskey. Who is in the old house when the squire comes down? The dead squire comes down out of the portrait to have his leg pulled after the hunting accident that happened to him, and the con- the dialogue and the conversation that goes on between the dead man and the living man, and the living man wakes up in the morning with the leg of the sofa, I think, in his hand. Uh, I knew nothing about Leffingue. I knew nothing at all about his connection with the Brinsley Sheridans or anything like that. But this struck me at that time as I said a great comic story, and I still think it is so. Uh, It ties up in many ways with his vision of the burning house, the nightmares that he had. He foresaw the end of a civilization. Lefenu had, George Moore had the same nightmares, the the great house burning. And remember, in the case of George Moore, the great house did burn. But Lefanu foresaw the end of that civilization, and I think there was something strangely psychic about him in this way, and that this comic story... Of the old squire in the old house relates in some odd way to the burning house and to the end of a civilization that we are actually witnessing at the moment, although few of us realize it. It was in those early years in Trinity that lefanu's brother
1: challenged him to write an Irish Loch He responded to the challenge with a ballad Parig Krohur.
4: Padraig Clahour was the broth of a boy, and he stood six foot eight, and his arm was as round as another man's thigh, but his Padraig was great, and his hair was as black as the shadows of night, and hung over the scars left by many a fight, and his voice, like the thunder, was deep, strong, and loud, and his eye like the lightning from under the cloud. And all the girls liked him, for he could speak civil and sweet when he liked it, for he was the divil, and there wasn't a girl from thirty-five under. Divil a matter how cross, but he could come round her. "'But of all the sweet girls that smiled on him, "'but one was the girl of his heart, and he loved her alone. "'For warm as the sun, as the rock firm and sure, "'was the love of the heart of Padre Crohor. "'And he'd die for one smile from his Kathleen O'Brien, "'for his love, like his hatred, was strong as the lion.' But Michael O'Hanlon loved Kathleen as well as he hated Crohor, and that same was like hell. But O'Brien liked him, for they were the same parties, the O'Briens, O'Hanlons, and Murphys, and Cartys, and they all went together and hated Crohor, for it's many's the baiten he gave them before. And O'Hanlon made up to O'Brien, and says he, I'll marry your daughter if you'll give her to me. And the match was made up, and when Shrove-tide came on, the company assembled three hundred, if one. There was all the O'Hanlons and Murphys and Cartys, and the young boys and girls of all of them parties. The O'Briens, of course, gathered strong on that day, and the Pipers and Fiddlers were tearing away. There was roaring and jumping and jigging and flinging and joking and blessin' and kissin' and singin', And they were all laughing, why not to be sure, how O'Hanlon come inside of Padre Crohorre. And they talked and they laughed the length of the table, ain' and drinkin' all while they were able. And with pipin' and fiddlin' and roarin' like thunder your head you'd think fairly was splittin' asunder, and the priest called out, Silence you blackards again, and he took up his prayer book, just going to begin, and they all held their tongues from their funnin' and bawlin so silent you'd notice the smallest pin fallin'. And the priest was just beginning to read when the door sprang back to the wall and in walked crahor Ah, oh, Padraig crahor was the broth of a boy, and he stood six foot eight, and his arm was as round as another man's thigh. that is his, Padraig was great. And he walked slowly up, watched by many a bright eye, as a black cloud moves on through the stars of the sky. And none strove to stop him, for Padraig was great. Till he stood all alone, just opposite the stage where O'Hanlon and Kathleen, his beautiful bride, were sitting so elegant out side by side. And he gave her one look that her heart almost broke. And he turned to O'Brien, her father, and spoke. And his voice, like the thunder, was deep, strong, and loud, and his eyes shone like lightning from under the cloud. I didn't come here like a tame, and mouse, but I stand like a man in my enemy's house. In the field... On the road, Padraig never knew fear of his foemen, and God knows he scorns it here. So lave me a days, for three minutes or four, to speak to the girl, I'll never see more. And to Kathleen he turned, and his voice changed its tone, for he thought of the days when he called her his own. And his eye blazed like lightning from under the cloud on his false-hearted girl, reproachful and proud, and says he, Kathleen Bawn, is it true what I hear? THAT YOU MARRY OF YOUR FREE CHOICE WITHOUT THREAT OR FEAR. IF SO, SPAKE THE WORD, AND I'LL TURN AND DEPART, CHEATED ONCE AND ONLY BY WOMAN'S FALSE HEART. Oh, SORROW AND LOVE MADE THE POOR GIRL DUMB, AND SHE TRIED HARD TO SPEAK, BUT THE WORDS WOULDN'T COME, FOR THE SOUND OF HIS VOICE AS HE STOOD THERE FOR AN INTER WENT COLD ON HER HEART, AS THE NIGHT WIND IN WINTER and the tears in her blue eyes stood trembling to flow, and pale was her cheek as the moonshine on snow. Then the heart of bold Padrig swelled high in its place, for he knew by one look in that beautiful face that though strangers and foemen their pledged hands might sever, her true heart was his and only for ever. And he lifted his voice like the eagle's hoarse call, and says, Padrig, she's mine still, in spite of you all. Then up jumped O'Hanlon, and a tall boy was he. And he looked on bold Padrig as fierce as could be, and says he, By the holy before you go out, bold Padrig Crowhor, you must fight for a bout. Then Padraig made answer, I'll do my endeavour. And with one blow he stretched bold O'Hanlon for ever. In his arms he took Kathleen and stepped to the door and he leapt on his horse and he flung her before and they all were so bothered that not a man stirred till the galloping hoofs on the pavement were heard. Then up they all started like bees in the swarm and they raised a great shout like the burst of a storm and they roared and they ran and they shouted galore. But Kathleen and Padraig, they never saw more. Ah, but them days are gone by and he is no more and the green grass is grown o'er Padraig Crohor, for he couldn't be easy or quiet at all. As he lived a brave boy, he resolved so to fall, and he took a good pike, for Padraig was great, and he fought, and he died in the year 98, and the day that Crohor, in the green field, was killed, a strong boy was stretched, and a strong heart was stilled.
1: Joseph Lefaneux's mother's family had been friends of several of the Irish patriots of 98, including the brothers Shears. On one occasion, as a young girl, when visiting Major Swan's Dublin house in North Great George Street, she had come across the dagger which he had taken when arresting Lord Edward Fitzgerald in the home of Mr. Murphy, the feather merchant in Thomas Street. And This she hid in the mattress of her bed, and later it became a treasured possession in the family. Was it this that inspired the story of the Hanging Judge, the story that began as Some Disturbances in Anger Street, but later evolved into the classic strange case of Mr. Justice Harbottle, set in post-Jacobite England? It tells of a notorious Hanging Judge, who is eventually confronted with the threat of a mysterious Higher Judgment.
0: Your lordship, a letter, a letter for your lordship. A messenger handed it in during the court, your lordship. And the messenger, where is he? No sooner come than gone, your lordship, vanished into thin air.
2: Vanished? Well, let's see what it says. I am ordered by the Most High Court of Appeal. The Most high court of appeal where have i heard that before i have been ordered by the most high court of appeal to request your lordship to prepare yourself for trial and to acquaint your lordship that a true bill has been sent down against your lordship for the for the murder for the murder of one lewis pinewick of shrewsbury "'wrongfully executed for forgery by reason of the willful perversion of the evidence "'and undue pressure put upon the jury. "'I am further ordered to acquaint your lordship that your trial for the said indictment "'is fixed for the tenth day of November by the Right Honourable the Lord Chief Justice Twofold. Oh, blood!
4: Do they think a man like me is to be bamboozled by
2: buffoonery?'
4: Further, I am to inform you that in case the jury should find you guilty, the Right Honourable, the Lord Chief Justice of the aforesaid Most High Court of Appeal, will, in passing sentence of death upon you, fix the day of execution for the 10th day of December, being one calendar month from the day of your trial. Signed, Caleb Searcher, Officer of the Crown Solicitor in the Kingdom of Life. And death.
1: Need one add that on the night of the very day, mentioned as the day of execution, his servants found Harbottle hanging on his own staircase. In 1850, Lefanu's best-known ballad, Seamus O'Brien, was published in a Dublin University magazine... It was taken up and frequently recited by Samuel Lover, to whom it is often wrongly attributed. It was inspired by the outlaw Kirby, who had many herbert scapes from the British troops while on the run in and after 1798. The ballad was adopted by a Mr. Jessop as the libretto of the opera Seamus O'Brien, the music for which was written by Sir Charles Villiers Stanford, who was a cousin of Loughanough's wife. It was first produced in the gaiety Dublin, In
3: 1896.
4: Just after the war in the year 98, as soon as the boys were all scattered and bed, t'was the custom whenever a peasant was caught to hang him by trial, barons such as was shot. There was trial by jury goin on by daylight, and the martial law hangin the lavins by night at them was hard times for an honest cassoon if he missed in the judges, he'd meet a dragoon, and whether the judge or the soldiers gave sentence, the divil o much time they allowed for repentance and it's many's the fine boy was then on his keepin with small share of restin or ain or sleepin and because they loved Aaron and scorned to sell it, a prey for the bloodhound, a mark for the bullet unsheltered by night and unrested by day, with the heath for their barrack, revenge for their pay. And the bravest and hardiest boy of them all was Seamus O'Brien from the town of Glengall. The morning was bright, and the mist rose on high, and the lark whistled merrily in the clear sky. But why are the men standing idle so late, And why do the crowds gather fast in the street? What come they to talk of? What come they to see? And why does the long rope hang from the cross-tree? Now, Seamus O'Brien, pray fervent and fast. May the saints take your soul, for this day is your last. Pray fast, and pray strong, for the moment is nigh. When strong, proud, and great as you are, you must die. And faster and faster the crowd gathered there, boys, horses, and gingerbread, just like a fair and whiskey was sellin', and cussum up too and old men and young women enjoyin' the view ten thousand was gathered there if there was one all waiting till such time as the hangin' had come at last they threw open the big prison gate and out come the sheriffs and soldiers in state and a cart in the middle and Seamus was in it not paler but prouder than ever that minute and as soon as the people saw Seamus O'Brien with praying and blessin' and all the girls cryin', a wild wailing sound came on by degrees, like the sound of the lonesome wind blowin' through trees. On, on to the gallows, the sheriffs are gone, and the cart and the soldiers go steadily on, and at every side swelling around of the cart, a wild sorrowful sound that would open your heart. Now under the gallows the cart takes its stand and the hangman gets up with the rope in his hand. And the priest gives his blessing and goes down on the ground, and Seamus O'Brien throws one last look around. Then the hangman drew near, and the people grew still. Young faces turned sickly, and warm hearts grew chill. And all being ready, his neck was made bare for the gripe of the life-strangling cord to prepare. And the good priest has left him, having said his last prayer. But the good priest done more. For his hands he unbound, and with one daring spring, Jim has leapt on the ground. Crash go the carbines, and crash go the sabres. He's not down, he's alive still. Now stand to him, neighbours. Through the smoke and the horses he's into the crowd. By the heavens he's free. Then thunder more loud by one shout from the people the heavens were shaken. One shout that the dead of the world might awaken. Your swords, they may glitter, your carbines go bang, but if you want hanging it yourselves, you must hang, for tonight he'll be sleeping in Aherlow Glen. The soldiers ran this way, the hangman ran that, and Father Malone lost his new Sunday hat, and the sheriffs were both of them punished severely and fined like the devil, because Jim done them fairly.
1: In 1845, Lefanu published his first novel. It dealt with his favourite subject, 18th century Dublin. This was the costume story, The Cock and the Anchor, with its duels and descriptions of old Dublin inns.
2: Some time within the first ten years of the last century, there stood in the fair city of Dublin, and in one of those sinuous and narrow streets which lay in the immediate vicinity of the castle, a goodly and capacious hostelry, snug and sound, and withal carrying in its aspect something staid and aristocratic, and perhaps in no wise the less comfortable that it was rated in point of fashion somewhat obsolete. Its structure was quaint and antique, so much so that had its counterpart presented itself within the precincts of the borough, it might fairly have passed itself off for the genuine old tabard of Geoffrey Chaucer. The front of the building, facing the street, rested upon a row of massive wooden blocks, set endwise, at intervals of some six or eight feet, and running parallel at about the same distance to the wall of the lower story of the house, thus forming a kind of rude cloister or open corridor, running the whole length of the building. Such as we have attempted to describe it, the old building stood more than a century since. And when the level sunbeams at eventide glinted brightly on its thousand miniature window-panes, and upon the broad hanging panel which bore, in the brightest hues and richest gilding, the portraiture of a cock and anchor, and when the warm, discoloured glow of sunset touched the time-worn front of the old building with a rich and cheery blush, Even the most fastidious would have allowed that the object was no unpleasing one.
1: The Cock and Anchor is, of course, a fictional hostelry, but there is good reason to identify it with another bricks-and-mortar establishment also mentioned in the novel. This is the public house now known as the Falcon at the junction of Old Camden Street and Charlotte Street, but which, until its change of name a few years ago, bore its ancient title of the Bleeding Horse. In 1847, Lefenu's second novel was published, and here again is Benedict Kiley.
3: And one of the most treasured possessions I have is a first edition of the, that novel, The Fortunes of Colonel Turlock O'Brien, A Tale of the Wars of King James. By Sheridan Lefanu. Uh, it's not what one, one would normally associate with Lefanu. We think of the mysterious and the weird in connection with him. This is a very straight historical novel. It begins in the summer of the year 1686 at about 10 o'clock at night. Two scenes were passing. And then later he talks about the magic mirror which every author, in virtue of his craft, is privileged to consult. But Thurlock O'Brien is, in fact, a straight historical novel and a very good one. Um, The magic mirror was a thing that Lefano used uh, with tremendous capacity afterwards when he wrote about this weird world. Uh, A world, I think, perhaps to which Lady Longford perhaps reintroduced us when she did the stage version of Carmilla. And when Eve Watkinson played in that play, uh, she left absolutely no doubt in the mind that you were walking in a weird world into which I think only De Quincey and perhaps Coleridge faced up to in the whole 19th century. Oh, softly tread, said Christabel, my father seldom sleepeth well. Um, and uh, Lefanu brought you, from this straight historical novel, he brought. He went into this weird world of the morbid imagination, uh, the world of disordered sex, drugs, everything that De Quincey had. Um, V.S. Pritchett, I think, wrote the most brilliant essay possibly ever written about Lefanu when he wrote the essay on Irish Ghost, when he talked about the Freudian nature of all the ghosts, like the monkey that sat on the shoulder of every clergyman. A pre-Freudian ghost, the Irish ghost, Sheridan Lefanu. And he went, he said, from his knowledge of Dublin, which was, I would love to read passages out of Thurlough O'Brien, which describes Dublin as it was and must have been, and he must have known it in his memory. And then from that absolutely, exactly pictured historical world, he walks into this weird, morbid world of the imagination, and the stories in a glass darkly, which I think will remain, you know, immortal among literature forever.
1: In eighteen forty four, Lefeneux had married Miss Susan Bennett, daughter of a leading Dublin barrister, George Bennett, Queen's Counsel. They had two sons and two daughters. When his father in law died in eighteen fifty one, his house at seventy Merrion Square was bequeathed to his daughter, and the Lefanews moved there from Warrington Place. For Susan Lefaneux it was, alas, only for a few years. She died in 1858 after a sudden illness. Her husband was grief-stricken and spent the rest of his life as something of a recluse. It was at this time that he began to write novels again and devoted himself to his work, rarely leaving his desk. The Merrion Square House today bears a plaque which reads Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, 1814 to 1873, writer, lived here. Part of the building is now occupied by Alhoila Aline, the Arts Council. In the lofty room, which is now his office, sits the secretary of the council, Mervyn Wall.
5: This house was, I think, built about 1760, like most of the other houses in this square. And as you can see, it's a very fine Georgian residence, and high uh, ceilings, and very fine big rooms. The Arts Council are very glad to be here in such a central position. Now, I have understand that Sheridan Lefenu worked here in this room, just exactly where I'm sitting. He worked at a small desk, and he only varied uh, his daily routine by taking a short walk in the garden to stretch his legs, that garden out there through the window that you may see. Now, uh, he is traditionally believed to have imbibed great quantities of green tea, which he believed helped to induce visions and helped him with his, his macabre uh, writing work. It was a saying of his that everybody uh, worked on a drug, every literary person worked on a drug of some sort, whether it be tobacco or, in his case, green tea. One of the
1: outstanding works of the Merrion Square period was Uncle Silas, a masterly novel of suspense, which later became a great success on stage, screen and, indeed, radio. A young heiress, Maud Ruthin is, after her father's death, taken over by a wicked uncle who schemes with a sinister governess, Madame Rougier, to murder her and inherit her wealth. The governess, who had been dismissed by Maud's father during her childhood, suddenly appears at Silas's house, Bartram Hall, where Maud is held almost as a prisoner.
6: With a sense of indescribable terror, I stood there staring at her. I couldn't move. She was sitting in a clumsy old armchair with an ancient shawl about her shoulders. She returned my stare for a few seconds with a startled scowl. The meeting was obviously as complete a surprise for her as for me. The next moment, she'd pulled herself together and burst into a loud, screeching laugh. <laughs>
7: dear Lord, oh, what a surprise i am quite overjoyed to see you again madame rougier what are you doing here i have just arrived your uncle silas has sent for me i am to accompany you to visit your little cousin in france is it not exciting when are we going i don't know quite soon i think i won't go
6: with you oh why not my father thought you so unfair a companion for me that he dismissed you I'm very sure my uncle will think as he did. It may be. We shall see, mademoiselle. I'm not such a fool as I was at Knoll. You shan't terrify me here. I'm going to tell my uncle all about you. Uh, Shall we go to him now? Yes. Very
7: well. Come along, child. We shall hear what he has got
6: to say. Uncle Silas?
0: Yes, what is it? Why am I disturbed?
6: This lady says she's been sent to accompany me to France. That is so. I want to tell you that I don't think she's suitable. Why? She was my governess at Nome. So I believe. And my father had to dismiss her. Oh, that is not true. It is true. She opened his desk with a false key and searched his private papers.
0: This is a grave charge, madame. Do you admit it? No. No, it's
7: lies, all lies. Oh, how can you be so spiteful, Maud? Spiteful? You actually deny it? Oh, she never liked me, monsieur. She was always trying to make trouble for me. You mustn't believe her, Uncle Silas. She's lying
1: later maude is sent off to france with madame rougier ostensibly to study but is drugged at dover and suddenly to her horror finds that she has been brought back to her, her uncle's house by a roundabout way
6: can you see the sea from the window
7: no dear child you will see it soon enough Oh, you look tired. Are you sure you're feeling quite well? Well enough to get up. I should feel better, I think, out of bed. There is no hurry, you know. Is there a pretty view from the window? No, not pretty. But see for yourself. Oh, that...
6: that courtyard. What about it? It looks familiar. It's it's like the inner courtyard of... It is the courtyard of Bartram
7: <laughs> Oh well, dearest Maud, isn't this a clever trick, eh?
3: <laughs> Later
1: that night, the final horror comes
6: coming in he's got something a hammer what's he going to do can he see me no no he's going to the bed drawing aside the curtains oh, oh no no <coughs> oh. he's killed her
8: who's that Is it over?
0: Look
2: what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Stiddy, my boy, Steady! You damn murderer. You killed Chuck, and now you've made me kill my own cousin.
1: The other outstanding novel which Lefenu wrote at this time was The House by the Churchyard, first published in the Dublin University magazine in 1861. Curiously enough, there are echoes of the story in no lesser work than Finnegan's Wake. Joyce worked into his masterpiece an encounter his father had with a tramp in the Phoenix Park. and This was on the spot where Dangerfield struck down stark in the duel in Lefanu's novel. Joyce described an elm tree as the soft-leafed elm Lefanunian, which, together with a mossy stone, tells the story of Anna Livia. And near the end, he mentions... What gypsy Devereaux vowed to Lillian, and, and why the elm and how the stone. The book had been a favourite of his father's, and Joyce had read it when he was very young. In Finnegan's Wake, the tavern-keeper in Lizard is H.C. Erwicker. The Phoenix Park is, at one time, the Garden of Eden, at another, the battlefield of Waterloo, while at times the action moves to Dublin, a phantom city, faked of film folk. The characters of the house by the churchyard flit like shadows through Joyce's book. Thus, that danger field circling butcher's wood, where fireworker of Flaherty engaged a nutter of castle mallards, and ah for archers stuns Turk, all over which fossil footprints, boot marks, finger signs, elbow dints, breech bowls, A.S.O were all successively traced of a most involving dishon. Another link lay in the fact that the former barracks of Lefenu's royal artillerymen in Chapel Lizard later became the distillery in which the writer's father, John Stanislaus Joyce, had shares and worked for a short period to justify his son's description. Among other things, he was something in a distillery, and at present is a praiser of his own past. But we anticipate, as they say, and must retrace our steps.
0: Here am I, writing in the 60s of the 19th century, and wondering what really did happen in that house by the churchyard. I was a boy at the time. The day it all began for me, I was on holiday at Chapel Lizard, staying with my uncle, the rector, and one afternoon was watching The Digging of a Grave for a funeral was imminent, and my uncle was busy fussing round the church where the service was to be held. As usual, there was quite a little group of people looking on at old Tim Moran digging the new grave, myself among them. Suddenly, a mound of earth fell in... And among it, a good store of brown dust and grimy bones, and a large yellow skull—a very peculiar-looking skull, indeed.
8: Beat the powers the war! Here's a battered headpiece for you now. Did you ever see the like of it? Show oh, it here to me, Jim. Huh? Let me have a look at it. Oh, murder! Murder, sure enough. Oh, sure, that poor fella got no chance for his life at all. That's a bullet hole, sure enough. Oh, and look at them two uh... cracks. Oh, murder, right enough. Whoever done that must have used a poker. Uh-huh. Now, could it have been the soldier... Wasn't it Mattress was the name? The soldier was shot in the year 90s, I've often heard, for, for, for striking his captain.
4: na says all. That poor fella's buried round by the north side. Neither could it be Councillor Gallagher that was killed in the duel with Colonel Rook. He was shot in the head, right enough, but that's not his cranium. Well, why not? Ah, You've only got to look at the coffin it tumbled from. To go into powder between your fingers, is nothing but tin.
8: Ah, will you leave me to work, the lassie? (laughs) (laughs) Here's the rector himself to see what's (laughs) Ah, holding up the work.
4: ah, Good day,
8: gentlemen. Good day, day, reverence. I'd have finished this while back only for coming on an old coffin. Did you ever see the like of that skull now, sir? Shot through with a bullet and cracked with a poker as well. But it's true enough, your Evans. Mm. He was murdered twice over, whoever he was. Rest his soul. Mm, He certainly was a murderer. He certainly seems to have sustained two heavy blows. Besides that gunshot through the head... It wasn't gunshot, sir. Why the holy taking a grape shot? So you don't think it's a bullet wound, Tim? Uh, Forgiven your presence, sir, uh, and Tim's... I know it's not a bullet wound. And what is it then, my good man, whoever you may be? Oh, well, Tis it it is no bullet wound, sir. Tis a treppin', an operation on the skull. A desperate operation, sir. And do you, by any chance, know whose skull that was? Aye, that's I do, sir. Well, for I seen him buried. Aye? Mm-hmm. I was only a lad at the time, and I'll tell you more. There was some dry eyes, too, at his funeral. Dry eyes, sir.
2: Hmm.
8: You're a Japanese man, then? An old soldier, eh? Oh, that that I am, sir. And I recognised that skull as if it was me own. And how long ago was all that? Oh, dear, the, the best part of 50 or 60 years. I remember him well. He was one devil of a man. Oh, maybe... He didn't get what he deserved. Could be the, the poor man was driven to it. Yeah? Could, could be. Driven uh, to what? Oh, that that doesn't signify, sir. Not at this time of day. You see this old school, sir. Mm. Well, it was a nine days' wonder and the queerest business you ever heard, tell of. Why, sir, the, the, the women was frightened out of their senses and the men puzzled out of their wits. Moisy, black and bloody business it was.
1: During the winter of 72, 73, the Invisible Prince was rarely seen outside of his house. He was feverishly racing against time to finish his novel, Willing to Die. Like the clergyman in his story, Green Tea, he worked throughout the night, occasionally partaking, as we've heard, from a kettle that swung over a lamp on his desk. In his last months, he had those dreadful nightmares in which he thought he was imprisoned in a house which was about to fall in on top of him. And when, on February the 7th, 1873, a physician who had been called to the house arrived to find him dead, he exclaimed, The house has fallen at last.
0: From this window, in the foreground, I see, in morning light or melancholy sunset, with very perfect and friendly trust, the shadowy old churchyard, where I have arranged my narrow bed shall be. There my mother, earth, at last shall hold me in her bosom, and I shall find my anodyne and rest. There over me shall hover through the old church windows faintly the sweet hymns and the voices in prayer I heard long ago. There the shadow of tower and tree shall slowly move over the grass above me from dawn till night. I am not sorry as I sit here with my vain recollections and my direful knowledge that my life has been what it has been.